Why Do We Sound So Good? Because we're at Dead Aunt Thelma's studio and Mike Moore is engineering for us. Thanks, Dead Aunt Thelma's. Thanks, Mike. Hi, everybody. I'm Susanna Mars, and welcome to Adventures in Artslandia. Today, I'm talking to playwright Mary Catherine Nagel, and she is the author of an upcoming play at Portland Center Stage called Crossing Mini Shoshe, and it is going to open in April. Welcome, Mary Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I had a, a wonderful time listening to you speak on a panel about maybe three months ago, maybe longer, at the Old Church. And I am mm. just very inspired by the work you're doing and the stories you're telling. Can you tell us a little bit about Crossing Minishoshe? Sure. Uh, Crossing Minishoshe takes place on Minishoshe, the Missouri River, which has long you know, it's been the ancestral home of many tribal nations. Minishoshe is the Dakota word for the river. But, of course, we know the Mandan and the Hidatsa and the Lakota, Dakota, and even the Ponca and Omaha and many tribes have lived along the Missouri River over, you know, since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. And, but this play in particular focuses on the location of the Missouri River where Lewis and Clark and the Army Corps of Discovery crossed the river in 1804, where they connected with Sacagawea, which, um, you know, like Pocahontas and many other real Native women who survived rape, domestic violence, kidnapping, um, you know, they've been turned into sort of these mythological figures in contemporary American narratives. So in my play, um, I try to deconstruct that myth a little bit and show some of the truth. Also, there's a lot we don't know about that time period because most of what people go off of is what Lewis and Clark wrote in their journals. But mm-hmm. we, <laughs> we know there's a lot more to this story than just what two white men wrote down on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is unpacking all of that and comparing that to um, the crossing of you know the very exact same place on the river, um, but today and that and today with the Army Corps of Discovery granting the easement to an oil company to cross the Missouri River, um, and again the Army Corps of Discovery I'm sorry the Army Corps of Engineers is the successor in interest so to speak to the Army Corps of Discovery. They're basically the same federal agency within the War Department, just change the names. Um, so I think it's it's important to see sort of how history is repeating itself mm-hmm. um, from the eight, early 1800s to today and what happened with the Army Corps of Engineers granting the easement the pipeline needed to cross the river. Hmm. There are so many stories to be told about the Native people in America and all over the world. How are you taking in all these stories? It's part of your own personal history. And how are you choosing the stories that you're choosing to tell as a playwright? Oh, it's a very good question. You know, uh, it's hard because, especially as a Native playwright, um, you know, so many of our stories have never been put on the American stage. I mean, most theaters have never produced a single Native playwright. So when you think about how many stories that are really critically important that haven't been told, you know, there are like thousands. And a lot of our stories you know, aren't just about our history and and Native people or the sovereignty of a tribal nation. It's American history, right? Right, I mean, you know, the United States wouldn't have won the Revolutionary War if it wasn't for the Delaware Lenape. Mm. You know, who's telling that story, right? Like, we wouldn't have won World War II if it weren't for the Navajo and Choctaw and Creek and Cherokee and all, you know, all the code talkers who, you know, we got all these stories that are actually American stories. They just aren't being told. Um, I think in some ways, out of ignorance, but also there's been a purposeful erasure of Native voices from the stage, and that that comes in a geopolitical context. I mean, 
you know, it's no coincidence that in the 1820s and 30s, the most, one of the most popular plays in the United States was a play that had red face, where no Native people were on stage, but non-Native people put on red face and, and feathers and pretended and played Indian and dehumanized us on stage. No coincidence that happened at the same time Andrew Jackson passed the Indian Removal Act and started attempting to remove tribes by force and, and really succeeded, I guess, in doing that mm. um, in, in the 1820s and 30s. So we know what it means to be erased from the American stage. We're just starting to to deconstruct that, that barrier and to appear on American stages. Um, you know, my play Sovereignty that was at Arena Stage last year was the first play that that Native by Native player that theater never produced. Portland Center Stage produced its first play by a Native playwright last year mm-hmm. when it produced Delena Studies and So We Walk. Mm-hmm. And so it's an exciting moment. And, and I think with that does come a lot of, um, you know, there are people that will say, well, why are you telling this story instead of this story? Um, you know, and every, every person feels like a, the story from their tribal nation, the story of their survival is critically important. And it is. Um, all these stories are important. And I think they all need to be shared. And my hope is that more and more theaters are going to agree to produce their first Native playwright ever, and that will give us more space to tell all of these important stories. But until then, you know, sometimes it's the theater will come to me and say, we're going to commission you, and here's the, um, you know, here's the subject matter, and they'll be very explicit about it. And sometimes they'll be like, write about whatever you want. Um, in this case, you know, Portland Center Stage said, it needs to be a story that touches on the Pacific Northwest. Mm. And they said it could be whatever aspect of the, it could be whatever makes, you know, when you think Pacific Northwest, what do you think? It doesn't have to be a play that takes place in Oregon or Washington, but it needs to somehow touch on the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Lewis and Clark, Sacagawea came to mind because, you know, Lewis and Clark hold so much, I mean, they're like mythological figures in, mm. in the state of Oregon. And I knew there was a lot to unpack there. And, um, and in fact, there are a lot of plays that dehumanize Sacagawea. And in fact, you know, in the early 1900s, the, you know, some of the most popular plays being performed in the United States had her as a character where when she came on stage, she could only speak in like, you know, a few small syllables. And she'd, she'd say things like, me make corn, mm. you know, and which is ridiculous and, mm. and, and actually, you know, really um, disgusting and offensive. But but that's kind of been the norm and we're just now starting to change that. But I felt like, you know, you've got hundreds of plays out there that dehumanize Sacagawea in the same way that people continue to dehumanize Pocahontas today. And what would it look like if if Americans had to actually be confronted with a a portrayal of her that is based on authenticity and power um, and not, um, you know, the dehumanization we've seen so far. It's so fascinating because with the advent of more and more diverse stories being told, it's really shaking the bedrock. And stories, while they are ephemeral in some way, also are psychologically, I think, a bedrock for the country and for us as human beings. And sadly, this bedrock is so full of of untruth that it's it's very I think it's very uh, disconcerting for yeah our culture oh. right now. We're all kind of feeling like there's this earthquake happening, and while you know it's such a an amazing and important piece for us to come to terms with these truths, it's very painful. It is very painful, and I think you know that's something we can't uh, look past or ignore as we're doing this work that. You know, um, <laughs> it's it's 
it's not easy if you have been taught growing up that as an American, you get to play Indian. That's your right. That's part of your identity as an American is to dress up as an Indian at Halloween and to celebrate Christopher Columbus and Lewis and Clark as your national heroes. When someone says, well, actually, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that. They weren't you know, they weren't the heroes that you think they are. They did mm. some bad things. Mm-hmm. And honestly, Lewis and Clark, you know, um, the, some of the worst things that came out from them weren't them personally, but some of the men they brought along with them on their journey. But mm. anyways, and of course, they were on a colonial conquest. I mean, their job was Thomas Jefferson instructed them to literally go tell the tribes, we, may, we purchased this land. It's no longer yours, which is crazy. I mean, <laughs> they've been there since time immemorial. And somehow, because the United States bought this land from France, then all, you know, hundreds of tribal nations were expected to just leave or surrender to the United States. So, mm. you know, the whole premise of it was crazy. But again, this just, yeah, we have sort of a psychology in the United States of this is what makes us American and this is who we are. And when you start to play around with that and question it, you know, you're, for many people, that's a fundamental aspect of their identity, even if they haven't consciously thought about that. Mm-hmm, I agree. So, yeah, so it'll be interesting. You know, I think most people get startled at first, but welcome. You know, when we did Sovereignty, um, that really unpacked unpacked Andrew Jackson. Now, I thought, you know, Christopher Columbus, Lewis and Clark, that's one thing. I feel like most Americans know Andrew Jackson was was evil and did some very, I mean, you know, basically was our Hitler. I mean, he he promoted genocide. A lot of people actually don't know that. I was surprised at arena stage. I would stand in the lobby after the show. How many people would come up to me and say, thank you for this. I didn't realize Andrew Jackson did all these bad things. Mm. And, um, you know, again, it's like, wow, we just, we just have a lot of the American story that hasn't been told yet. Mm-hmm. And um, I do think most people want to know the truth. That's what a lot of people said to me, which I'm, they were almost like angry. It's like how I'm, I'm angry that people didn't tell me the truth growing up. Like, mm. why didn't I learn about this in school? And, and um, so I do think most people will welcome it, but they're, there are people who are very angry about the plays that I write, too. So mm-hmm. there are people who just flat out resist it, you know? Right, of course. It's, you know, it's the earthquake that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, what have you found that's been successful in the way tribal peoples are coming to term with this very traumatic and violent past? You know, that's a great question, and I think a lot of us are still working on the best methods. I think our own traditions of healing and community and um, and faith and spirituality are incredibly powerful mm-hmm. at, at healing, you know, the historical wounds that genocide has brought on us. At the same time, the genocide and, and a lot of the U.S. governmental policies um, were geared towards wiping that out. I mean, for, you know, many decades, um, our religion was actually illegal. You could go to jail for practicing your, your religion, which we don't we think is ironic. And, you know, we think we're the land of the free when it comes to religion here. But for the majority of the 20th century, if you were practicing, if you were a citizen of the Osage Nation or the Oto Missouri tribe or you name it, you know, and you practiced your religion that, you know, your ancestors had practiced since time immemorial, you would go to jail. So, um, again, so a lot of tribes, you know, the, the things they had in place to bring about healing as a community have been taken away. So many tribes are trying to restore those through restoring language, restoring traditional practices and ceremonies. Um, at the same time, too, our families have been broken down. You know, if you think about, first of all, Trail of Tears, removal, a lot of families lost parents, people were orphaned. Then, you know, after that, you were, you know, children were removed 
well into the 50s um, to be taken and placed in Indian boarding schools. And, you know, so we just, we've had a lot of disruption to Native families. So there's a lot of work to do restorative healing. Um, and it's very difficult. I, I think, you know, many of our tribal nations have a very strong oral history tradition. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what that is, is storytelling, right? And, and that's what theater is. And I've seen how, how healing theater can be. I really believe in the power of theater. Mm-hmm. And I think in many ways, you know, as, as, as Native people, we, we are inherently in, incredibly talented theater artists because we have been raised in a culture and a tradition of storytelling. Um, and so for me, you know, a lot of times when we are dealing with trauma, anytime you can, and you work with a community or a family to find a creative way to express your story, that starts the healing process. Mm. Um, it's still painful, but I think that's a, a really important way for us to really begin to heal some of the, the trauma that, you know, it hasn't been healed yet. So I know so many theater companies and other arts organizations are incorporating tribal peoples into content that they are putting on stages mm-hmm. and into galleries. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about diversifying audience and boards and the other powerful people who make art in the cities of the United States. I think it's incredibly important. And so I'm so thankful to the theaters that do have someone who's native on their board, like theater squared in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are theaters out there who are working directly with native communities. You know, um, the Oregon Shakespeare festival in Ashland just hired, you know, a native woman to come on board specifically to do community engagement, to bring, you know, to work with tribal leaders and tribes in Oregon and Northern California to say, we, you know, we don't want to just produce plays by native playwrights, we want, we want our, our theater to be a space where Native people feel welcome to come and watch plays, whether it's by a Native playwright or a Black playwright or a Latinx mm-hmm. playwright or, a, you know, LGBTQIA2 spirit. I mean, right, like, we, you know, we don't want it to just be, oh, we want to welcome Native people when there's a Native play every now and then, or, you know, for some theaters that would be never, but <laughs> um, we really want this to be their home, too. And I think that's where the work really needs to go next as well. And And so, you know, theaters like Oregon Shakespeare Festival that have, really made that a serious commitment and hired a a native person to do that work, I Mm -hmm. think is really where my hope would be a lot of other theaters go as well. Yeah. I learned a lot last season at artist repertory theater. I'm a a resident there. Um, We did the Thanksgiving play by Larissa fast horse and she came and spoke to us and we did some training with her about what to expect with audiences and how that the ways in which to open our doors and our hearts to, especially now that we're talking about much of this work is very traumatic and deep. And there may be some burning Mm -hmm. of sage or some spiritual practices around what, what spiritual beings are being brought up through the work Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and history and loss and grief. It's, it's big stuff. It's big stuff, and um, you know you um, you can never fully prepare yourself for how it might affect you. I know in the rehearsal room, you know at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, we're working on Manhattan. I mean, there are just moments where um, there's a lot of grief, mm-hmm. and you need to create that space for folks to just have a moment to breathe. And if they need to cry, cry. If they need to take a walk, take a walk, because you're unearthing historical trauma. 
you know, and I think comedy, Larissa's play is a comedy, is a fantastic way to heal trauma as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very healing to laugh. But, you know, sometimes the laughter also, you know, helps to move things. And and so you never know. You have to just, you just have to be prepared for those moments um, when they might happen and, and how to support folks who are dealing with that trauma. Now, I don't know if everyone knows that you're also a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, and I know mm-hmm. that you were very involved in the Standing Rock protest, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what that meant to you. Well, it was an honor to work on that, uh, you know, with thousands of other folks, of course, and it was a very powerful movement. You know, it was started by the youth up there mm-hmm. who saw what was happening in their community and said, we want to protect our river and our sacred burial sites and our drinking water and our sacred lands and um, our home, you know, treaty lands that our nation signed a treaty for. So they ran first to the um, Army Corps of Engineers in Omaha mm. and delivered a petition there to stop the pipeline. And when that didn't work, they ran all the way to Washington, D.C. to deliver a petition to President Obama. And, um, you know, I think that's when the movement really began. And that's what galvanized and inspired folks like Shailene Woodley and Mark Ruffalo, who eventually came to Standing Rock's side to support them in that fight. But they came because the youth grabbed their attention and they said, this is important, this is powerful. Mm. And I just, um, you know, and then the tribal um, tribal leaders at Standing Rock stood behind the youth and supported them. It, it, was, it was a really important moment, I think, because Natives are so invisible in the United States today. Um, you know, I recently worked on this project called Reclaiming Native Truth with Echo Hawk Consulting and First Nations Development Institute. It was a $3.3 million research project funded by Kellogg and some other foundations um, and certain tribes that looked at how do non-Native Americans perceive Natives today. Mm-hmm. And, and most of the perception, some of it is harmful racist. I mean, look at, you know, the Washington football team. Uh, you know, they're actually using a genocidal term and celebrating it at every football game. And it's very problematic. But most Americans... The problem isn't that they encounter racist stereotypes of us. It's that they hardly encounter us at all. Mm-hmm. It's like we don't, in, in many of their minds, we just don't exist. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we don't have representation in the media. We don't have, I mean, we, for, you know, for the first time in the history, we have Native women in Congress now. So this is starting to change, right? And mm-hmm. I think what happened last year in Oregon is a huge sign of things starting to change. All of a sudden, you have three Native women getting produced in, in Oregon at the same time. It's mm-hmm. phenomenal. But, you know... I think what happened at Standing Rock is we really pierced that invisibility because, you know, we have the highest rates of domestic violence and sexual assault and murder against our tribal citizens. We're the, we are, have a higher percentage of our population that gets beaten up or killed by the police than any other population in the United States. I mean, you name it, we've got, unfortunately, the worst statistic, but the least amount of attention put on our issues in terms of the national media or in courts or in Congress or in theaters, right, or in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, and so what happened all of a sudden with Stanley Rock is that people started talking about us, and not talking about us like they do when Disney does Pocahontas, and they're talking about us, but, but we don't get to talk. It was like they're talking about us, but they're actually listening to us because mm-hmm. it was our youth who did this, and then it was our tribal leadership, like Chairman Dave Archambeau, who was on national TV and who was in the press, and, and our grassroots leaders who were getting media, national media recognition. So all of a sudden, we were no longer invisible. We were visible, and, and Americans were listening to us. It was a very powerful moment. It's exciting now because, as you said, the visibility is becoming more and more, and 
even here in my community, I didn't know much about uh, organizations that were supporting uh, Native young people. And NAYA here in Portland is a great example of uh, an organization that's doing wonderful work. And I just wanted to make sure that people who listen might uh, take a look at the website and, you know, get a look at how they can support uh, young people and so much, many of the Native stories being told and mentorships and all sorts of wonderful work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and so how do you balance your life as a obviously busy lawyer and a busy playwright? That, that Those are two big jobs. Um, it's very challenging. And, um, you know, I just, uh, you have to be very focused. I have, I'm very OCD about my calendar and I just, <laughs> I know what I'm doing at every moment. Right. I, you know, you have to create to-do lists and you have to set aside time to write. You have to set aside time to draft all the emails. You have, I mean, I have just as much emails to write for the theater as I do for being a lawyer, it mm. seems these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it is time management and, and um, discipline, actually, which are not necessarily fun things to deal with. But right. I guess if you want to have two careers at the same time, they're sort of necessary. I had uh, three questions that are kind of a, a, are on the lighter side. So take a big breath. <laughs> and uh, okay. describe your perfect ending to a stressful day. Hmm. That's a very good question. Well, I'm very blessed right now to have... Um, a beautiful partner mm. whose name is Jonathan, and that's public. It's on Facebook, so I can share that. <laughs> and he has two incredible little boys who are 9 and 11 years old. And, you know, honestly, for me, my favorite way to end a stressful day, whether I've been on the Hill fighting for VAWA or, you know, restoration of tribal jurisdiction to protect our women or, you know, in rehearsal or working on a play is to be able to come home and um, they love playing exploding kittens right now. So um, my favorite thing to do is for us to all sit around at night and play a few games of exploding kittens and have dinner and have story time. And, um, you know, nothing's better than that. Oh, that's just really funny. Uh, that sounds great. Uh, and my uh, another question for you is what makes you laugh? Mm, that's a great question, too. Hmm. Actors make me laugh. Mm. I love actors. If you've never, when you have a great cast, like um, the cast that I had, you know, for my play Sovereignty at Arena Stage or my play Manhattan at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Mm -hmm. um, or the cast that I know I'm going to work with um, at Portland Center Stage because I've worked with all of them before in some capacity, you know, they're they're so creative and hilarious Mm. and there's nothing like sitting in the rehearsal room and watching them walk through, work through your work and just everything they do and what it, you know, also what's not in the script, mm. especially what's not in the script. My actors always make me laugh. <laughs> it's so interesting because what you bring up reminds me that all these earthquakes that are happening for us as a culture, when we start to welcome the authentic experience of life, the, the highest highs and the lowest lows, life becomes much more... It, you get more fun and funny things. I know when I've been in a rehearsal room as an actor, you know, when you're working on a piece that's very, very deep, you also have this new potential for higher highs. There's something crazy about Mm -hmm, how the mm -hmm. space for emotional content just grows the more authentic and connected you get. Absolutely. I absolutely believe that. That's a real blessing in what these stories are going to give us as Mm -hmm. a nation, I think. I think so, too. I, I really believe it. Yeah. I really do. So what's inspired you this week? Oh, my goodness. Um, let's see. What has inspired me this week? 
Um, I'm trying, like, where all have I been in the last week? <laughs> um, I'm very inspired that right now in the Congress, we have several people on both sides of the aisle fighting to get a reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act that will restore additional pieces of our tribal criminal jurisdiction that the Supreme Court took away in 1978. Mm. So today we have the highest rates of domestic violence and sexual assault against Native women and children. But the Supreme Court in 1978 said we can no longer criminally prosecute non-Indians who come onto our lands and commit violent crimes or any crime. And But the Department of Justice has reported that the majority of folks who commit these violent crimes against our women and children are non-Native. So mm. because of the Supreme Court case in 1978, all of us want, we can't prosecute the majority of the violent crimes committed against our women and children. Mm. We have folks in Congress right now working to restore tribal criminal jurisdiction over crimes committed against our children, against our police officers, our tribal police officers show up to a domestic violence call. If it's a non-Indian perpetrator right now and um, a cop shows up because a woman called 911, if that non-Indian starts assaulting the police officer, the police officer can't arrest him. Mm. That's currently the law right now. So, you know, we have a lot of, that we need to do to restore safety to our, to our tribal nations and our citizens. And we've got folks like, um, you know, <clears throat> I mean, I could just start naming all kinds of different senators and members of Congress right now who are working really hard uh, to restore those pieces of criminal jurisdiction. And there's even going to be a hearing on the Violence Against Women Act on the Hill on Thursday. Mm, that is very exciting. The protection mm-hmm. of women and children and these stories coming to light and your work toward that is so inspiring. And I thank you for doing it. Oh, well, thank you. I mm. mean, it's an, it's an honor to be able to do this work, for sure. Well, hopefully everybody who listens will also be inspired to learn more and to know these stories and to carry them with them so that we can infuse our whole culture with the compassion for all human beings. Exactly. Yes. And yeah. if anyone wants to learn more about these issues, you know, the, the organization I represent as an attorney is the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, and they have all kinds of information on their website. So you just have to go to www.niwrc.org. Fantastic. And you can read all about VAWA and everything else. Well, and if you want to know more about Crossing Minishoshe, you can go to pcs.org, and the play is going to open in April. And I thank you so much for yes. talking to me, Mary Catherine. It's been a real delight. I mean, I could talk to you for another couple of hours. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me, and I hopefully I, I hope to see everyone when I'm in Oregon in April for the play. Sounds great. Have a wonderful day. Okay, thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to Adventures in Artslandia. Download the Artslandia app on iTunes where you're going to find a comprehensive arts calendar that's the best in the West. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Artslandia.